course, you know, this particular thing I've done a few times, so you can find it somewhere online, um, <laughs> even if I hadn't uh, started before. But anyway, this is contextuality and the meaning of the Old Testament. So uh, when very opening pages of scripture, you're studying the Pentateuch, this is this kind of massive five-book composition of Moses late in his life. And he writes about Adam and Eve, how they bring sin into the world. They break the covenant relationship they had with God. And then a few pages later, we see that a seed of Abraham, someone from his line, will renew this relationship and bring blessing. And this seed, this line, uh, this, this descendant who comes from Abraham will be from the line of Judah. We see that in Genesis 49. Mosaic covenant provides temporary fulfillment. See that in Exodus and Leviticus. It provides temporary fulfillment. It's a governor, so to speak. If you ever think about a, you know, if you ever rent like a U-Haul and it's got a governor on it, you can only go 55 miles an hour, right? The, the, the Mosaic Covenant is a governor, so to speak. It's supposed to help them, but it is not the permanent solution that Moses envisions because of the heart. So we see late in his life, Deuteronomy 30, Moses envisions a, a future covenant that will circumcise the heart. So, and then it also late uh, there, Deuteronomy 18, we get this prophecy about a prophet like Moses who will come. We also see at the very end of Deuteronomy an indication that we should not expect as we read on to see this prop prophet immediately because it says in, in the time of Israel, no prophet has arisen like Moses. So we read on and we get into Joshua and it, it uh, gives us this example of a leader while we wait for the prophet. So until the prophet comes, meditation on the word of God is the example the leader gives us. He is the example of the leader. We are supposed to be and should desire to be while we wait for the coming of the prophet. And then in Judges, uh, we see that after Joshua's death, there is now not just a sin problem, but a lordship problem as well. The very end of Judges gives you the purpose of that book, which is... Uh, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, right? Uh, then Samuel, uh, and in the Hebrew Bible, there's only the one book, Samuel. Uh, same as what we have, but ours is divided into two. Uh, but in the book of Samuel, uh, the solution to the lordship problem is the king from the line of David. So we get this example of David. He is the, the man after God's own heart. He's the example. He's... Um, He's what will be the solution for the people as far as the lordship problem, who they should look to and follow. Uh, then Kings comes along and gives us the line of the Davidic kings and shows us that the wrong leader not only provides the wrong example for the people, but leads them even into even further destruction. So we see at the very end of Kings that they're wiped out, taken into Babylon, um, and we see a, a major sin problem and a lordship problem running concurrently uh, throughout the text. And then Isaiah comes along, first book of the latter prophets, and we have a solution, uh, a real climax here. The suffering servant, he is the one who the reader has been looking for. He not only solves the sin problem because he dies on behalf of others, he's pierced for the transgression of others, using that same uh, Mosaic Covenant imagery of sacrifice, uh, but he's also this Davidic king. He is the leader uh, that we need. So as you're reading through, you can kind of see 
Okay, each of these are individual theological compositions, but placed together, you can think of them as being uh, retrofitted into a larger story without swallowing up the individual uh, theological uh, intentions. Um, does that make sense? Any, any questions, comments about the Hebrew Bible up until this point? The reason I wanted to talk about this a little bit was um, Jeremiah is going to kind of shift focus into um, the purpose of what's happening in the exile. And he's really going to, from here on out, we're going to get much more focused towards the future, right? There's been a lot of reflection on what's happening right now. Now the prophecy we've seen in Isaiah, this concept of the remnant, but now the prophecies are getting more and more just a, a focus on the future and what's going to happen after the exile. So I wanted to spend some time on this. Any questions, comments, contextuality, meaning of the Hebrew Bible? Okay. Okay. Well, let's uh, jump into Jeremiah then. Uh, Jeremiah is a later prophet than he is a latter prophet, but he's also a later prophet than Isaiah. Um, uh, he is, if you remember, Isaiah was around, you know, 740, 700 BC. He's in the southern kingdom, but speaking about both kingdoms. Well, Jeremiah is much later than that. Uh, he's early, uh, you know, 500s BC. And he's also in the southern kingdom, of course, because there is no northern kingdom at this point. So the northern kingdom was wiped out in 722 BC. So Jeremiah is uh, here late in the life of the southern kingdom. Uh, so uh, we most would suggest that this was written sometime around the exile, which happened 587, 586 BC. So um, definitely a little bit later than Isaiah. Uh, but speaking very directly to some of these kings like uh, Josiah and those after. So, uh, so let's jump in here. Um, let's see, Isaiah. So the other one thing I wanted to say is we just, we just learned Isaiah. Isaiah focuses on the exile and the hope that will come after. Jeremiah is going to continue these themes and talk about it even more the hope that's going to come after the exile. Okay, that's going to be a major purpose of the things he's talking about. Okay, so let's jump in. Jeremiah 1 through 6. A prophet named Jeremiah introduces himself as someone God spoke to during the reign of Josiah. He describes his call from God how God reassured him that he would be with him wherever he went. He also tells him, quote, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So this immediately brings up Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. You know, you're asking now as the reader, is he a prophet like Moses? Because he has the words of God. Um, and that he has been appointed, quote, over the nations and over the kingdoms. Uh, this is 110, I believe. Uh, Jeremiah 110. Yeah, see, I have, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. He tells him that a threat 
will come from the north to destroy Judah and that his message to the people will be met with opposition. So I think this is a kind of a programmatic little section here at the very beginning, programmatic for understanding the whole book. He's, he's not going to be a, uh, um, a Joel Osteen type prophet. <laughs> it's the best way to say it, right? He's not going to just give you what you want to hear. He's going to be opposed again and again and again. He's going to be a prophet who preaches destruction. Okay? Um, okay, so uh, God will be his only aid. God then tells Jeremiah what he is to say to Judah. He is to speak of their apostasy, how they've broken the covenant. They worshiped idols and turned to Baalism. According to God, they have not responded to him and refused to repent. And it actually says there in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, that Judah is actually more guilty than the northern kingdom because they should have seen what happened to Israel just 100 years prior and repented, but they didn't. They just kept along with the same, uh, the same things and the same path. So God then tells Jeremiah that Israel can still repent, but that they won't. God says that they should return to their first love, him. He describes this process as one where they, quote, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. God once again mentions the disaster coming from the north. This day of Yahweh will bring destruction and the leaders of Israel will be punished. Jeremiah appeals to God. He says that God has deceived the people. God, you're not being fair here. You've deceived the people and appeals to the people to repent. This pleading on behalf of the people yet preaching to them is a common practice of other prophets. He's playing mediator here, right? He's trying to get them to meet in the middle a little bit. He then laments over their destruction to come. God responds by speaking of Jerusalem's godlessness. It only has those consumed with idolatry and adultery. God proclaims judgment on the people. Only a few will live to tell of what God has done. Because this destruction is coming, it's including its war and siege, Jeremiah is instructed to glean as the vine the remnant of Israel. So in other words, his job is to find the remnant. That's the blank there. Find the remnant that will remain faithful. God again discusses the enemy from the north who will come against Israel. So this is, for the reader, this really hits home because we've already seen it happen in the former prophets, right? We've seen the actual narrative give us what happens here, the destruction of Zion. Um, so this really hits home about the inevitability that he's speaking about here. All right, Jeremiah 7 through 10. 
The, the book now shifts to Jeremiah's acts as a prophet. So we've gotten a lot of his prophecy to them, warning to them already, but now it shifts to his acts as a prophet. First, he stands at the temple gate, warning Israel not to trust in the temple alone, but that repentance is necessary. Jeremiah sets himself against the people, challenging them in what they trust. He says they are trusting in deceit, other gods, and idols. He again focuses on the false hopes in the temple and sacrifice. Quoting God as saying, quote, I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. So what's going on here? I mean, is he trying to change Mosaic Covenant or something, trying to say they shouldn't be doing the sacrifices? No, that's not what he's saying. And I think that you can actually make the argument. Let's actually look at this. Leviticus 26. Uh, we're going to look at verses 40 through 42. Uh, I, I would argue that this is what Jeremiah is saying here right now is already anticipated in the Pentateuch. Um, because if, if, if you were with us when we studied through the Pentateuch, we saw this in Exodus and Leviticus, this kind of um, pattern where... God gives um, the covenant and some stipulations that go with it. And this initially was the Ten Commandments, but what happens when he does that? Well, they immediately break the first commandment, the sin of the golden calf. So you've got already a failure of it. Then he renews the covenant and gives additional stipulations that tries to deal with this failure. But again, we see in Leviticus 16 there, um, another failure, the sin of the goat idols. So again, we're given additional stipulations to try to help deal with this failure. And then there's a renewal of the covenant. And this here in Leviticus 26 really is talking about this renewal of the covenant. Um, so could I have a volunteer read verses 40 through 42 of Leviticus 26? Any volunteers? I'll read. Yeah. Um, so 40 through 42. Uh-huh. But if they will confess their sins and their sins to their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them, so then I sent them into the land of their enemies, and then when their uncircumcised hearts are humble and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and 
and I will remember the land. Thank you. So let's flip back to uh, Jeremiah 9. So what we, what we just read there was the end of this pattern that God is taking the people through and that we, his interactions with the people and in the text, we see the end of this pattern, the renewal of the covenant. And he's giving this kind of description of, look, this is, this is the key. Like you want to have success with this covenant, these sacrifices, all these things. The key is humility, right? Humbling before me, humbling yourself before me and repenting. This is what you need. Like the, you're, you're responsible to do these things in the Mosaic Covenant, these 613 commandments, including the sacrifices at the temple. But the, the, the key is the heart. How is your heart towards me? That's, that's already anticipated here in the Pentateuch. And then so we get back to Jeremiah 9, uh, verses 25 and 26. And there he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of the Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So he's, he's just hearkening back to the the teaching of the Mosaic, or the teaching of the Pentateuch itself, which is saying, look, this is this is about the heart. You have to have a humble heart. You have to be repentant towards me. That's really the key. Um, so now he's getting, he's he's even standing in front of the temple and making this point, right? So um, with the status of the people's heart, this is a very, uh, again, he's causing friction and opposition with the people. Um, so Deuteronomy and other prophets see true obedience as coming from the heart and warn of the dangers of sacrifice without pure motives. His next message is that the people have abused scripture. He specifically mentions the scribes, prophets, and priests as playing a role in this abuse. Jeremiah prays for and suffers with the people. God tells Jeremiah that the people cannot be trusted and highlights their lack of wisdom as the reason for their demise. God then condemns not only Judah, but Egypt, Edom, Ammon, and Moab as well. Jeremiah then gives a satire on idolatry. He shows God to be unique, the king, the living God, the everlasting king, and the creator. And then juxtaposes that with the idols. He shows the idols to be made by humans, impossible of instructing, and without life. He next discusses the judgment on the nations for their idolatry and dealings with Judah. So uh, we have, a, I think, a pretty obvious, again, we, we're trying to make these possible significances here, but I think we have a pretty obvious one here when we think about the character of God and things that relate to us in the New Covenant. This pro passage provides a model for true worship, 
We must put our faith in God himself, not in our Sunday or even our day-to-day -day religious rituals. I mean, you can see the message here being very poignant for us as well. Yes, we have ordinances, we have um, corporate worship, we have certain expectations as members of, of a local church, uh, we have our, our daily things that we do to try to enhance or keep our walks with God. We have all of these things, but if we put our faith in those things as opposed to God himself, that's, that's not really the example that the scripture gives us. So uh, just open it up for discussion. Do you sometimes get preoccupied with ritual? Why does God want more than just going to church, saying a daily prayer? Uh, any thoughts there? Anybody want to share? dinner time you say grace and i sometimes go i'm just saying the same thing over and over again i don't think it's necessarily bad because yeah it does it is it is an acknowledgement right but i don't think it's very productive sometimes yeah you know you just i do it and i kind of go i'm, I'm you know i kind of think god looks down and go here it comes again <laughs> <laughs> at least he knows i'm here yeah, yeah yeah you know but it's not i don't think i'm preoccupied just sort of mindlessly. Yep. Anybody else want to share? I think just like Carol was saying that we we get used to sometimes in maybe in a rut. Mm -hmm. And then it's like God knows you've got lots of trouble. Yeah, you're thanking me for the chicken dinner. That's great. But what about this over here that's really, really concerning and consuming you mm. right here? You've not said a thing about that to mm. me as if I don't know. Mm. Yeah, well, that's good. You yeah. know, in the forge, we're getting this, this talking about the Holy Spirit, and the verse that always comes up is the, the groanings, you know, mm. I, I remember years ago a friend of mine when I was at A and M, and he was, and uh, he told me that he'd gotten to the point where he had so much going on, he actually felt that just didn't know what to say. You know, you're just you're praying, and you just go, "There's too much," and that's sort of the opposite end of the just sort of thanks for dinner, and, yeah. You know, and I kind of go, "Yeah, I'd like to get to that point." Yeah, right. And instead of Let's see. You know, well, there's sick people in the house. Wish the dog would behave himself. You know, as opposed to something that's a little bit more meaningful. And yes. Impactful or something. Yes. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. I think um, the creation, everything that he made. I mean, there's a word for it. Like my heart leaps up when I see anything that God has made. Uh, I do this often. When you see the moon in the daytime, it's like, wow. Yeah. He did that. He made that. This, yeah. is, this is great. Yeah. Or a starry night, or just all kinds of things that He does. Lightning, you know, and it just it gives me a constant sense of 
I mean, sure, I have funky days, you know. Yeah. But it's like, he's amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like, it's not so much a prayer each time. Although I, I kind of do say a prayer, it's like, wow, thanks. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. You did that. But uh, it's a... It's just a, a, a life of prayer and praise. Yeah, yeah, it's good. That's the goal, anyway. Yeah, that is the goal. That's great. Thanks for sharing. Okay, uh, let's move on here. Uh, Jeremiah uh, 11 through 20. God gives Jeremiah another prophecy. Uh, this one on the breaking of the covenant by the people. Uh, people conspire to kill Jeremiah, and he learns about it. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise at this point in the text, right, based on what he's been saying to them. Uh, Jeremiah prays, and God tries to prepare him for more difficult times to come. Uh, at, at this point, Jeremiah is still kind of complaining to God, you know, like, um, why is this happening? You know, he's, he's at least a little impatient with him, okay? So God grieves with Jeremiah and then tells him of the coming uprooting of Judah. After this, God, quote, will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them back. So we've got a little bit of a moment of hope here. Uh, Jeremiah's suffering and the future exile have God's purpose behind them. Jeremiah then uses a prophetic sign to show the people that they are spoiled. He takes a waistband and hides it by the river. It gets ruined, and God says that, that the people are like the waistband refusing to cling to him as the waistband has not clung to a man. I think that's a very interesting little illustration. Uh, just take your belt and put it over by the river. It's really interesting. Um, so Jeremiah preaches to the people about the drought in the land. He also prays to God on behalf of the people. God says, quote, do not pray for the welfare of this people. He says he is going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. So in other words, I mean, he's basically, stop praying for that. Stop praying for them to be saved, this particular people to be saved. Their, their time is coming to an end. Um, and let's see, these are added to the repeated prophecy about Babylon. So yeah, he, he gets a little more detailed here, sword, famine, pestilence. Uh, God tells him, that judgment is inevitable, saying, quote, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. So that's a shocking claim. So even if these guys were here making an appeal, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't matter, wouldn't work. Um, Jeremiah laments for them and for himself, accusing God Again, being very argumentative with God at this point still. Accusing God of being a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable. God rebukes him 
and tells him that he will receive the protection that the people will not. So just Jeremiah will receive protection. Okay, uh, jumping into chapter 16, God tells Jeremiah to become a separated remnant from the people, telling him he cannot marry or go to funerals. God again speaks of the coming distress and how he will restore the remnant. If you remember from Isaiah, our study there, sometimes the remnant is apparently a remnant of Israel and Judah that actually physically returns from the exile that's a little more temporary or a little more um, imminent. Uh, but then at other times, it seems to be in the distant future, a group that is in Zion. So in times, they're kind of intermixed, these two concepts. Yeah. I don't know much about Jeremiah, but is, is this is he writing this and the people are reading this in real time and that's why they want to kill him? Yeah, most likely not. I mean, but you see him, a lot of these prophecies, especially these big three major ones, you see these different times in their prophetic life where they're actually speaking these words, but then he collects them and puts them into his theological composition. So yeah, I think I think we're these things we're saying, especially when it says he's, you know, standing there and he's saying this to the people, then those are things he's saying. It's like the belt thing. Is that just he God says, take your belt and hang it down here. Yeah. It's not like he's got a crowd following him and they're gonna hang the belt there and they're all gonna watch this. Is it just he's doing this as a personal example with just Jeremiah and then he uses it later? Yeah. Um well, he pre it says he preaches, so uh, it's there in, I can't remember which chapter, but it says he preaches to the people this, you know, so it's like he, he uses it as an example, and then he uses that to then preach to the people. So I think there's something, you know, at the time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because it's like nobody likes him, but yet they're still, you would think they would just leave him alone and ignore him. Yeah, well, I think he's making that difficult, right? Especially like, I think he's, I think, you know, kind of like um, uh, Jesus up the ante when he went to the temple and started throwing stuff around, right? I mean, you know, they're, they're living their lives and they they think they're fine. Then he goes and stands in front of the temple and he says, this is, yeah, I mean, this, you, you guys just coming in here doing these sacrifices, this doesn't mean anything. Um, so that, I think he's causing friction, um, certainly is something we're supposed to, supposed to see from this. Yeah. Yeah, I'll answer part of that question. Most of that is written in what's called called perfect, third masculine singer, singer in Hebrew, which means it's past tense. Yep. So these things are happening, and then later on he's writing it, what yep. happened. Yep. And it, it's going to go to Babylon when they go to captivity. Now, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because he cried to God all the time because he was having to tell Israel things they did not want to hear. What he's telling them, listen, Babylon is going to come in here and take you captivity just like Assyria did to Israel in the north. Yep. And when they go, you need, you need to go with them and cooperate. And if you go cooperate with them, I'm going to protect you. But if you don't go and cooperate and you stay here and fight, you're going to die by one of those big three which you just mentioned, the sword, pestilence, or famine. Mm -hmm. So this is something they do not want to hear. They try to kill him, but they can't kill him. Mm -hmm. he, he's, he's supernaturally protected. So he's not a very proper prophet because he's telling them things they necessarily don't yep. want to hear. Yep. Yep. Every bit of this was predicted in Deuteronomy. Yep. He said, 
uh, all these, it says Israel's going to transgress, they're going to go follow yep. other idols, and they're going to go into captivity by four nations. So everything that Moses wrote about is being happened yep. in Jeremiah. Yep, yep, and we, we uh, talked about that when we went through the Pentateuch. We got at the very end of Deuteronomy, this kind of gauntlet. If you obey the, the covenant, then this you'll have blessing. If you don't, then you'll have cursing. And actually, it's kind of foreshadowed, this exile that's about to happen. So, yeah. Thank you. That's a very good summary. Okay. Um, so, let's see here. Uh, where were we? Uh, we're in... Yeah. Uh, so God again speaks of the coming distress and how he will restore the remnant. He will no longer be known as the one who brought them out of Egypt, but the one who brought them out of the countries where he had banished them. The author next moves to the deceitfulness of Judah's heart. God says he is one who can understand and search the heart. Jeremiah again puts himself against the people, not wanting to take advantage of the Lord. Jeremiah then preaches to the people about the Sabbath, as God intends to continue enforcing the covenant. Jeremiah tells the people that God is their creator, just like a potter is the creator of a pot. He condemns them for forgetting God, and once again, the people conspire against him. Um, the, the cons now, at this point, the conspiracies against him, the opposition to him, they seem to not discourage him. They seem to almost embolden him to uh, continue on with the same message. So, um, you know, you could actually change the song to Jeremiah was a bulldog, right? He just kept going. I'll, I'm here every Sunday. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. Uh, so Jeremiah now agrees with God about them saying, quote, do not forgive their iniquity. So he's on board with God's message now. He's not, he's not fighting him anymore. He's not um, resisting uh, at all. He's not even debating with God. God tells Jeremiah to get a potter's jar and take some of the elders and priests and smash it in front of them. God says that because of their idolatry and sacrifices to other gods, he will break this people and this city even as one who breaks a potter's vessel. Pashur, the priest, hears of Jeremiah's preaching and has him captured and beaten. When Jeremiah is let out, he prophesies that Pashur will die in Babylon. Again, he doesn't change his message. He seems to be emboldened by the opposition. Uh, Jeremiah complains again. Okay, now he's back complaining. He sees God as his only ally saying, quote, he has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hand of evildoers. So his complaining more is about his circumstance, not necessarily about the message from God. Still, he questions his life and asks, 
quote, why did I ever come forth from the womb? So Jeremiah struggles here with contentment in difficult times. Uh, 20 verse 18, you can see that there. So uh, I made the joke at the beginning that this is not exact. This is not a Joel Osteen type prophet. I think this is an example we can see from this, like the message of God, the truth of God, versus, say, some you know benefit or earthly blessing that we might get. Right. Uh, so possible significance here. We're not always guaranteed earthly blessing. Uh, we must be willing to find satisfaction and contentment by living in God's presence as nothing else is promised. Again, we, when we do these Old Testament studies, it's character of God, relationship with God, these kind of broad ideas that we can take to a new covenant reality. Uh, for discussion, if God allowed you to struggle financially or health-wise, would you be content? How do we stay content in God's presence without focusing on our present circumstances? So, uh, you know, Oftentimes, Job is, and rightfully so, is the example given of, uh, you know, from the scriptures of, you know, you're not always guaranteed earthly blessing when you're obedient to the Lord, right? There's a difference between spiritual blessing and earthly blessing. Um, Job, by obeying God, was blessed spiritually when he was obeying him, uh, but he was not guaranteed earthly blessing. This is another example that really speaks against this kind of heresy, word of faith thing that's out there that, you know, you, you just, if you have enough faith, then, you know, you'll be healed or you'll be rich or God will bless you in this way or this way, this way. Spiritual blessing is certainly different than earthly blessing. So any thoughts here on these questions or comments? circumstances because that you know well we're going to go through so many of what this pilgrim's passing through yep and if we start focusing on what's happening to us here we're not going to serve god mm. we're going to serve ourselves yeah and whine bellyache and cry yep you know yeah it's good uh, go ahead. i often think of the question in my head what is it that you want me to learn in this mm. particular stage that I'm in because I want to hurry up and learn it <laughs> get through it pass mm. whatever test so hopefully I don't have to do this one over again mm. yeah that's what I ask myself yeah, or yeah. ask the Lord yeah right Yeah, right. Well, a wedding vow. Yeah, I mean, you, you're supposed to you stand before the Lord and you go in sickness and in health and mm -hmm. all these things. And that's like, that's, you know. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's good. 
Okay, uh, let's finish up here. <coughs> Jeremiah 21 through 25. Uh, King Zedekiah asks uh, Jeremiah if God will deliver Jerusalem when Babylon attacks it. He responds with a message from God, Jeremiah does, that I myself will war against you. <laughs> so that's probably not the answer he was looking for. Uh, there is no hope, and the only way to live is to surrender. God gives Jeremiah another word about the fall of Jerusalem. He says that nations will ask why God has done this, and that people will say, quote, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord their God and bowed down to other gods and served them. He then analyzes the kings who have preceded Zedekiah, listing their many faults. Uh, they have oppressed, been greedy, and killed the innocent. Exile awaits the people. We certainly saw that in Kings. We saw many, many uh, Kings with many faults. Uh, Jeremiah expresses God's disappointment in the shepherds of the people, saying that God will penalize them for their deeds. Uh, God says that he will gather the remnant together and bring them back to their pasture. So uh, is it John chapter 10? Um, Rich preached through, um, uh, I believe it's John chapter 10. I may have the wrong chapter there, but um, where Jesus is um, uh, talking about being the good shepherd, and he really uses a lot of the imagery here back from kind of some of these Old Testament books, including here about the comparison between the old shepherds who really did not do what they were supposed to do. Um, so he speaks of another shepherd uh, saying that, he, quote, will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. So in the midst of this word of judgment, we have a glimmer of hope. And the glimmer of hope is in this shepherd who will come in the future. So this is a clear intertextual reference to uh, the Davidic Promise from 2 Samuel. Uh, here we are, Jeremiah 23. Uh, <coughs> could I get a volunteer read 3 through 6 of chapter 23? Thank you. Jeremiah 23, 3 through 6. Yes. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their pastures, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will, be, will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our Righteousness. 
Awesome. Thank you. So this, actually, we've got a passage here about this coming Davidic shepherd or king, and it actually says Judah and Israel will live together under his rule. Uh, so the prophets are then denounced. Those Baal prophets of the further, f former northern kingdom and the corrupt prophets of the current southern kingdom. Jeremiah says that they do not speak from God, prophesy false dreams and ideas, and their oracles are not effective. He's just making friends everywhere here. Uh, after Jehoiakim is exiled in 597, uh, Jeremiah gets a vision of two sets of figs. The bad set of figs represents the group of Israelites who will be abandoned by God and scattered among the earth, and the good set represents the remnant in Babylon who will return to me with their whole heart and then return to the land. Jeremiah reminds the people of all the times God has spoken, but they have not listened. For this, God says that Nebuchadnezzar will be used to take them all captive. It actually calls him my servant. So he refers to Nebuchadnezzar as my servant. Uh, the exile will last 70 years, and many nations will see destruction. That's an important thing there. Uh, Jeremiah 25, 11. Ugh. Jeremiah 25, verse 11 there. Uh, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So we got an actual specific prophecy about how long they'll be exiled in Babylon. That will come up again, okay? So just mark that in your head. We got this kind of 70 years prophecy. All right, uh, starting in 26, chapter 26. Jeremiah next includes a summary of his message to the people when standing in the temple. Uh, he is persecuted and plotted against for this message. The officials spare his life, saying, quote, He has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. They compare his message to that of Micah and decide they can still repent just as in the time of Hezekiah. Uh, Uriah is not as fortunate as he is killed for also preaching the truth. Uh, during Zedekiah's reign, Jeremiah prophesies about the Babylonian exile. That's the blank there, Babylonian exile. Telling the nations, Zedekiah and Israel, that they should serve Babylon. Um, could even say this brings the, brings the prophecy up a notch in its kind of offense that it's going to have towards the people. Not only is it too late, but actually you're going to serve Babylon. <laughs> this probably is very offensive to them. Uh, Babylon is God's instrument. He is opposed by the prophets of the land. Jeremiah is. One particular prophet, Hananiah, 
um, prophesies that the possessions and small number of exiles who are in Babylon will be returned within two years for God has, quote, broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. So this is a dramatically different prophecy than the one Jeremiah is giving, right? Um, it actually says in chapter 23, verses 34 through 38, that prophecy of oracles have ceased to come, but he's prophesying this oracle and saying, well, this is what's actually going to happen. So in a symbolic act, it's the blank there, symbolic act, he breaks the yoke around Jeremiah's neck. At first, Jeremiah is hopeful that the prophecy is true. Well, maybe, maybe God's changing things here. I'm hopeful this is true. But then God tells him it is not, and Hananiah dies, which this is consistent with uh, prophecies in, or um, statements in Deuteronomy about prophets who prophesy something that does not come true. Uh, Jeremiah writes a letter to those already in exile, telling them that the exile will not be short, and that God says, quote, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. Um, this is then where we get this kind of famous... Uh, 2911, I know the plans I have for you. Maybe the one of the most quoted scriptures, certainly from the Old Testament. Um, uh, so, <laughs> the question I often get, and uh, I wish Kelly was, Kelly Graff and I were talking about, um, you know, things taken from the Old Testament out of context. I would definitely say this is probably one of those um, because, you know, People will add this scripture to, you know, whatever idea they have about God having this wonderful plan for their life, right? When actually the, the prophecy is specifically about his plan to bring the Israelites back from exile. Now, what we're about to see in Jeremiah in the second half next week is the, uh, um, a greater purpose for a future new covenant, right? So that's really kind of the main point of the second half of Jeremiah. Um, in that way, you can think of the plans God has for you, uh, Israelite, is a new covenant where the heart is changed. In that way, we can kind of think of this passage as being for those of us who are in the new covenant. Um, so if you think of the passage really applying that way to God changing your heart, you're repenting of your sins, uh, coming to understand the gospel and what Jesus did on the cross for you, then yeah, you can kind of make that. But, um, you know, oftentimes this passage is used in kind of this kind of context of, well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? And that's not really necessarily scriptural. So if the wonder plan, wonderful plan for your life is that you would repent and your heart would be changed by the Spirit of God, great. Yeah, you can, that's certainly applicable, but... Um, I mean, would you, the, the example I always give is, um, would you tell somebody who on September 10th who was going to die in the World Trade Center catastrophe, would you tell them God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? I think they would probably misunderstand what you were saying if you were really saying something about the New Covenant, right? I mean, that's, 
usually that's the way people say it, right? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, does he in that instance? It's not really correct. So anyway, a um, little diatribe free of charge. Let's get back in the text here. Um, okay, so let's see. Uh, he warns the people not to trust the other prophets. Jeremiah is opposed by many people during his ministry, including kings, prophets, and priests. He also wins few converts to his cause among the people. In spite of all this, he does God's will, and his message eventually proves to be true. So I think, um, again, taking, taking the example of Jeremiah here, God expects his followers to be obedient, not popular or influential. We must be willing to give others the truth and love regardless of how they respond. So some discussion questions here. How does the example of Jeremiah's ministry and God's vindication of it affect your view of your own ministry? Are you concerned with a positive response or in God's will? Uh, are you concerned with God's will? Uh, how does his ministry, Jeremiah's, affect your view of the church and the church service? Any thoughts there on any of those questions? I made the joke about Osteen, but um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I don't want to just single him out, right? There's certainly a kind of idea in the, the Western church about comfort and making church easy, uh, making the message easy. Um, I'm certainly not trying to uh, preach about against, you know, just having a nice building or, you know, being a place where people are welcoming. I'm certainly not trying to speak against that. But the message itself um, needs to be about the gospel, right, the truth of God. And sometimes that message is offensive. Um, and that's really where uh, Jeremiah found himself. He found the message of God was offensive to those who were hearing it. So any thoughts here on any of these questions? Got a little bit, a few minutes here, a little extra time. I think, I think when you go out and witness to people on the streets, I, th I think you got to keep in mind, you know, that we're not going to be accepted all the time. Yep. We're going to get made fun of, stuff like that. You can't focus in on what they say. You gotta focus in on what God's got you doing. Yeah. And it's, you don't know what's happening in people's life. Yeah. You know, uh, we had, me and my wife was down at the Morgan St. Louis witnessing. Uh-huh. And we had a guy that was pretty much what we call heckling us, giving us a hard way to go. Mm -hmm. And what was about a year later, I got a call from the church that we was out. He wanted us to come. He got saved. Oh my gosh! Wow. And, I mean, he was, we was actually ended up being mean to the guy before it was over with. Uh -huh. You know, you, you either gonna go to heaven or hell. Yeah. You, you're the one that's gonna have to either receive Jesus or yeah. this is where you're going. Yeah. And, and, and there's no way to go about it. Yeah. You know, it, it's just it is what it is. But I, you know, I felt bad because I don't usually preach. You know teach people that way, you know, right. I, I, I don't know that, you know, our sins were destined to hell, but yep. I don't say, this is where you're going to go, continue on your route. Right. 
Right. You know, and it was sort of nice to, that he invited us to yeah. see him baptized. Well, that is awesome. Wow, what a cool yeah. testimony. Yeah. Very cool. Anybody else? Thank you very much. Anybody else? Anything to share? Okay. You know, it's like we, yep. can't, we can't save anybody. Right. You know, when somebody asks you how many people have you saved, <coughs> yep. God does all the saving. Yeah, you right. Know, I think right. the person needs to keep that in mind. Right. If they're out there witnessing, you ain't doing, you're just doing what God says to do. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I, um, uh, the, our, Sarah and I, our college pastor who married us, um, several years ago, he was looking for a position he was hiring, and he told me the story about how he, somebody sent him his resume, and on his resume it said, you know, brought this many people to the Lord, you know, with a number on it, mm -hmm. and he wanted to respond to him and said, um, number of jobs at this church, zero. You know, like, <laughs> if, this is, if you think about it this way, then you're not a good fit for this church. Man. Um, any other thoughts? Anybody else? All right, great. Now next week we're gonna this we kind of think set this up for uh, what Jeremiah's real message is. He's setting all this up for his true purpose here about the future. That's what it's really gonna shift into uh, next week. So uh, see you then. Thanks.